This is UCD Business Impact, a new podcast series from the UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we'll be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, it's a long casualty list. Brooks Brothers, John Lewis, Debenhams, Boots, Muleys, of course, Monsoon, Cat Kidson, the appropriately named Urban Decay, Oasis, Laura Ashley. All of these companies have either been laying off people, gone into liquidation, or generally retrenching as the retail sector in recent weeks has been taken an absolute battering. But even more interesting than that is probably the, the raw numbers and the more secular trends that are going on. It was uh, five years ago that Amazon passed out Walmart in the US in terms of market capitalization. Nowadays, Amazon is a $1.5 trillion company and Walmart is stuck back on the more modest $368 billion company. So I suppose that tells us a little bit about the kind of trends that are going on in retail today. But peering out beyond the immediate A&E ward, what is the future for the sector and what might it look like after the pandemic? And the man who knows a little bit about what it might look like is my guest today on Business Impact, and that's Professor Damien McLaughlin, who is the Anthony C. Cunningham Professor of Marketing at UCD Smurfit Business School. You're very welcome along to the program. Thanks, Emmett. Nice to be here. It's good. We've got a lot to get through, as you can hear. Just sure do, yeah. Reading those names, the casualties, the fallen, um, really gives you some insight of how widespread and kind of deep this um, pandemic recession has been on the retail sector. But I want to get beyond kind of uh, the firefighting element and look a little bit further mm. out to what it might look like. But first of all, let's just survey the battlefield a little bit. Uh, how bad is it between uh, online seems to be growing, growing reasonably well and, and vigorously, and bricks and mortar seems to be in a real deep crisis? Is that the way you see it, or is there a little bit more going on? I think the the situation is, a, is richer than that, we might say, in a classroom at Smurfit School, you know, that there are certain firms who develop a retail presence, and they're a fashion business. And the thing about fashion is it comes into fashion, it goes out of fashion. So when you hear some brands that have gone out of business recently, I, I'm sorry for the people who work there. I'm sorry for the shareholders who've lost money. But in a sense, they just lost the rhythm of the market a little bit. And, and somebody else will come and take their place. It's not necessarily in terms of, of, of bricks, and, bricks and mortar, uh, but somebody else will come and take their, their place uh, in the marketplace. And I, I like to think about those as the transitory kind of retailers. Um, there is a second group of retailers, and, and those are the retailers, in my mind, who are being outcompeted by by new competition. So, you know, we all remember Extra Vision or Blockbuster in the US, or the bookstores. I mean, we used to have a lot more bookstores around the place outcompeted by by Amazon. And what's what's really significant about those firms is that we we often think that you know take the book business that that Amazon takes 100% of that business. It never has been close to 100%. Online book selling is around or about a little bit less than 50% of the total market globally. And with those out-competed retailers, the question is, how much of your business do you have to lose before you're in trouble? And if you think about how retail economics works, basically it works on get as many people into the store as you possibly can, get them all to buy something at a low price, which has a small margin, we try and pay, get the money in from the re, from the consumer before we pay our suppliers, uh, and that's how we make our very small margins. 
Now, how much of the of a retailer's business do you have to take away before you're in trouble? And the answer is, you know, it's probably like less than 10%. So you take 10% of the market away in terms of books, suddenly a huge chunk of booksellers are in difficulty. You take away 10, 15% of the market for fashion, and I mean clothing and so on, suddenly a whole bunch of retailers uh, are in trouble because their economic model is is so so challenged, uh, if you like, uh, by tight margins and a reliance on footfall. But I, I also think it's interesting to, to think about in, in retailing the ones that have not really been affected. And, and those are the ones who own the relationship with the customer. And here, of course, it's easy for us to think about the, the big grocery retailers like Tesco's, Dunn Stores, Super Value, uh, and firms like that in the, in the UK, Sainsbury uh, and Waitrose. They actually own a relationship with the with the customer. They are the point of entry into the market for the customer. Uh, you mentioned Walmart in your introduction, Emmett. Uh, they also own a relationship with the customer, and that relationship with the customer is an asset, and it's an asset that you can uh, treasure and you can polish and you can use to come back at the market again. You know, facing down some of the challenges that we see in the market, or you can throw your hands in the air and say, "We're all doomed. We're all doomed." And a lot of the companies I've read out, the brands I've read out, they had online businesses. You know, they had obviously a lot of um, bricks and mortar parts of their operations as well. But was it because um, they had poor online presences and they came to it too late? Was that the thing that kind of exposed them to a certain extent? Yeah, I, I think a lot of times firms don't understand the economics of online and they they think that if they are, if they have an online presence, all, all problems are solved. But if you can't make money doing that, you're in trouble. And let me let me just give you a you know a real live example of this happening right now today. Uh, a lot of supermarkets operate what 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 is called click and collect. So you make your order online, and then you drive down to the store, and they wheel out a, a trolley or a basket. They give you your product, and you drive home again, and the sale is online. It's, it's reasonably convenient for the, for the consumer, but from a retailer's point of view, it's an economic disaster. The average basket of shopping in Ireland, let's say it's around about 100 euros, okay? Mm. Um, the margin on that might be 6 euros, 8 mm. euros, depending on, depending on what's purchased. The time it takes to pick that basket, put it in a trolley, and then for a person to wheel it out uh, to your car, load up your car, check the receipt. Everybody's happy. There's some kind of phone call afterwards because you forgot the tomato ketchup or whatever it might be. The cost of that is at least one hour of time. Now in Ireland, the minimum wage is over 10 euros. So immediately that retailer is underwater because the margin that they've made on the basket of shopping is actually less than the cost of, of, picking, of picking the product. So in actual fact, this whole self-service retail concept that we have is shredded by what appears to be a halfway measure uh, of going online through click and collect. It doesn't just apply to grocery. Our, our local hardware store, um, which we try and support, two brothers run it, we try and support it as best we can. Uh, and we always choose there first. You can you can order, click and collect. But the margin that they make, it just it just doesn't work out for them economically to do that. They they actually need you to their economics needs you to come to the store, pick the product off the shelf yourself, walk to them at the cash register, hand them over your cash, and then walk out the store. And Nothing is that also to... is that also because you will pick up more in store? That a lot of the research shows I, that you yeah. will get more products because it's spontaneous. I, 
I've always been a little bit unconvinced by that to be quite to be quite honest with you as an I, I, I'm sure you could find research to support that. I've always been a little bit unconvinced uh, uh, by it. I mean, it's, it's definitely a portion of some baskets. You know, you go to buy, you go to buy a hammer and you buy nails, or you go to buy nails and you buy a hammer, or you go to buy a saw and you buy a level as well. Or, mm. you know, yeah, sure. I, you know, you could see how that might happen, but it's. I don't think it's. Um, I don't think it's a huge part of the economics of the operation. The economics are basically about employees and how you use those employees and the efficiency that you get from those employees. And I might also say in terms of the, of the click and collect, I don't know whether you've had this experience or not, but it by and large, the service is, is really awful because what the person does, what the, what the retailer does is they, they hire some young person and who has no experience of shopping or, or picking a basket. Uh, and they say to them, okay, here is the order uh, from the Oliver residence from mm. the, from the McLaughlin residence. Um, they're going to be here at two o'clock tomorrow. You pick that basket at, at one. And this person has no idea how to shop. They don't understand the nuance of differences between products. So you bring your products home. And even if they haven't replaced what you ordered with substitutes, because that's sort of ruled out now, what they've chosen, you know, we got, an, we got some groceries last week and, and all the apples were bruised because the person who chose them never took the time to check whether they were or whether they weren't like a normal shopper would do. So um, I, I think the, the, the problem with online uh, and why it hasn't worked out for many stores is that it was done as a halfway measure. They haven't actually committed resources to providing a truly online experience. They did not change their business model, shedding assets to allow them to invest and to focus their business on being online. And then very often the service that's provided is really, really terrible. And Damien, you talk about the customer service. Would you rate that as a bigger issue than the, the pure economics of a company like Amazon that has all those economies of scale advantages, or at least you would think so? Would you say, well, yeah, that's fine, but the actual customer thing may actually be where their real vulnerability is? Well, when we, when we teach uh, Amazon, uh, at the school, the first thing we say is, why is Amazon so successful? And everybody says, oh, it's the supply chain, it's the economics. But if you if you have Jeff Bezos in the room with you, and I, I never have, I never no, met him. There's but still I, time, you know. There's still time, there's still time. Uh, Bezos uh, writes to his employees every every year and says to them, we are a day one company. And what day one company means is that every organization, when it's founded, is founded on the principle that we are there to serve the customer. And I would argue to you, uh, and in fact to anybody, that uh, Amazon is the most customer-focused uh, company in the world. After after Disney, it's probably the only company that I know that I have nothing negative to say about. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Nothing. Because somebody miss, uh, you know, kind of didn't appreciate the threat they had originally when they entered the retail sector all those decades ago. You know, they, the, the other sleeping giant stayed asleep. You could just look at the figures that I read out at the start of this item. Uh, I wanted to switch your attention a little bit away from customer service, though, onto the revenue side and also onto the, the liabilities. We also see a lot of the coverage about retailers, about the landlords, how much debt some of the chains have that they can't get out of very, you know, rigid um, landlord relationships. And that's one of the problems that they have managed to renegotiate those and ease up and throw up a little bit of extra cash flow. How big a factor do you think that is in the demise of some of the, the bigger names? Oh, listen, it's, it's been, it's been very, it's been very significant. Um, rents too high, rates too high, cost of employees too high. 
but of course I've never met anybody who had the, you know, every person who opens a business has tremendous courage. Most of us don't, I don't have that courage and I really admire people who, who open businesses. I've also never met somebody who opened a business that I thought was stupid. Okay. So everybody who signs a contract for, uh, for rent on, on the main shopping street in any city, fifth Avenue in New York, uh, Regent Street in, in London, Grafton Street in, uh, in in Dublin. They knew what they were doing at the start and then something else happened. And very often I think what, what retailers end up in is, is almost like a, a death spiral. It's like a, 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 a vicious cycle that they come under pressure for some for some kind of reason and they start to push down on their costs. As soon as you start pushing down on your costs, the whole thing starts to fall apart because then you don't have the staff to, to deliver the service that you promised. It's not the unique experience that you promised. It's not competitive uh, with the alternative. And suddenly, the business that you paid that high rent for in order to have that, this high street presence, suddenly that's gone. Um, so I'm not inclined towards uh, blaming uh, the landlords, and I certainly am not inclined towards blaming the entrepreneurs who are behind it. It's the management of the business, which is the difficulty and the failure to recognize that when you are a retailer, with some exceptions, and Amazon is one of those exceptions, but Walmart is becoming one of those exceptions, it's a, an entirely transactional business. The mainly women who sell fruit and vegetables and fish and flowers on Grafton Street and on Moore Street in Dublin, those mainly women, and they're almost all women, are the ultimate traders. They buy product in the morning with the idea they would sell it during the day and have money to buy product the next day. And what they have to understand is what the customer will want today in order to be able to sell that because if they don't sell it, they don't have any money to buy stock tomorrow. And, and I think all retailers think in the same way and then something happens and suddenly the wheel gets knocked off of them. And that's, what, that's what's happening here, I think. And do you think the, the landlords and the retailers, you know, they have a, they're, they're kind of locked in together, they're peas in a pod commercially speaking here, I mean, if they leave and these big department stores in particular who have huge footprints leave, I mean, the landlords must be saying, you know, who replaces retailers? You're saying earlier in this podcast, other retailers, but even, you know, the, the turnover period, you're going to have a gap, you know, rent is going to be foregone at least for a period. I mean, who's going to replace retailers if it's not other retailers? Is there any other sort of business line that can go into these high streets or is it well, just a case of readjusting the whole rental structure? I think the assumption that we sometimes make is that, things will go back to the way that they were. There's some kind of linear relationship uh, here. One of the complaints that many of us, you know, citizens of Dublin would make is about the retail structure of O'Connell Street in Ireland, the capital city of Dublin. Uh, you know, the retail mix in that street is not conducive uh, to uh, the boulevard kind of experience, which you might expect with the widest street uh, in the European Union. Would you be too upset if some of those businesses went and were replaced by restaurants or bars or places that, you know, families might want to go? Uh, would you be upset if the, if the pedestrianization of the streets was continued and it became a beautiful boulevard where you could go with your family on a sunny day and pass the time? So I think the assumption that, you know, a Grafton Street would stay in retail, why would you assume that? Couldn't yeah. it be a residential street again? Couldn't couldn't it be offices again? What exactly? But don't do don't we planning need for. Don't, doesn't planning laws 
preclude you from making those changes or make it at least awkward to go from retail into yeah yeah use? you have to change and you have to make a planning you have to make a planning application and uh and, and so you make a planning application i don't see what the problem is in principle yeah that it could it could switch over what, what why not what I think the assumption that's more dangerous even is that the landlords seem to be making the assumption that I can just, you know, come, come to, you know, have a disruption, get rid of a tenant, and there will be readily a similar tenant lying up behind that prepared to pay similar rent. I just don't know if they will be. And the landlords know a lot more than I do about... Balance sheets are the explanation for a lot of difficulty in the retail space. Because if you look at the balance sheets of many large retailers, um you see the reason why they have not wholeheartedly switched to online because much of their asset value and as a result of that, their banking covenants are, are connected to their uh, fixed asset value, which is often heavily in sites. You know, one or two large retailers who have been in trouble in the last little while have taken the opportunity to write down the value of sites, that is locations where they have stores and locations where they don't have stores, in order to reduce the pressure on their balance sheet actually of switching to being online. Now, the people who own stores are mainly pension funds, and they don't only invest in property, although it's a very stable uh, kind of resource. And they sort of need to do the same thing here in order for this to, uh, to, to, to work out. But could you imagine Grafton Street, Emmett, if all those cafes and restaurants that are on the side streets were suddenly on the main street and we have this wonderful pedestrianized street, beautifully wide street where families, uh, young people could go and enjoy an ice cream, a pizza, a burger, a steak, whatever your thing is. And then there are also uh, shops that are there, shops that are that own a relationship with uh, a customer. So, so some very nice bookshops in that part uh, of the of the city. Brown Thomas, an iconic place where people go to buy brands, where there is a very, very definite experience to be had there, and uh, and they own a relationship with uh, with customers, and it becomes this uh, this wonderful place of uh, of culture and entertainment. It sounds terrific to me. Well, the way you've sketched it, it certainly does. It's a reinvention, I suppose, of the the public realm or the public square. Yeah. Um, Who wants? Uh, I know. I know some people like shopping. You sound um, like you don't, Damien. Is that what you're hinting? Well, I, I like I like retailing. I'm, I'm not. I don't like shopping. And uh, you know, one of the questions I ask in class class is, when was the last time you had fun in a supermarket? And <laughs> and supermarkets are not a place where you have fun. Uh, I, mean, I met my wife. We worked in Dunn stores and Ratmines. Mines. That's where I met my wife. So I've had some fun in supermarkets in my time. Uh, <laughs> but but you know, it's they are not fun places to go. They do not sell solutions to people coming through the door, they assume a certain type of family structure. That is, one person, typically uh, the woman, is at home, she shops, buys ingredients, goes home, prepares those ingredients for the family. Now, I, I don't know too many families who operate on that basis anymore in 2020. I didn't know too many of them operating that basis in 2010. And I, in fact, I'm probably going back to my own parents and their brothers and sisters in the 70s and 80s when I was a kid for that the last time that prevailed in Ireland. Yet supermarkets are still fundamentally the same the same today. Well, we had a, we had a guest in a previous edition of this podcast, Maeve Houlihan, who's a colleague of yours, and I asked her, why did the office ever exist in the first place? I mean, why was it there? It must have had something to recommend itself at some stage. And, and her, her answer, if I'm being, uh, paraphrasing her correctly, was essentially that 
it was for the employers, for the managers, it was a way to coordinate and bring people together in one place. Yeah. But there must be a reason why shops, uh, you know, the high street bricks and mortar store exists. Obviously, we didn't have online, so, it, you know, could, nothing else could exist in the place. But there must be something about the shopping experience. Just going back to your supermarket point, there must be something about the experience that we like somewhere, maybe not in supermarkets, but maybe in fashion stores or music stores or somewhere where you can live out a hobby or et cetera. So are those, re- are those things still in place? So if you're o- if the listeners to this podcast who do own a bricks and mortar store or operate one or manage one, are those reasons still intact for someone just to walk in spontaneously I, and yeah. pick something up? I, I, I think they, I don't believe that they are. And I think that they are increasingly less so. So the reason why a lot of stores exist is because the economics of the distribution of the product works better if you get in your car, drive to a drive to a store, get out of your car, go into the store, look around, search yourself, pick the item that you want, go into the fitting room, try it on, come back out, get the next size, the smaller size, the largest, whatever it is. And then you go to the person, you say, I'd like to pay for this, please. And then they make you queue and take your money off you. Uh, that's, that is a fantastically attractive economic model. And if that is the only way you can buy a pair of shoes or you can buy uh, a suit or, or whatever it is that you're buying, well, then, well, then so be it. But if you could, um, I, saw, I saw a thing in New Zealand um, that was a couple of years ago, like maybe 18 months or two years, not, it's not 10 years ago. A Japanese company had built this um, like, a, like a tight-fitting kind of rubber suit thing. Now stick with me on this, Emmett, for a yeah. minute. I'm getting worried um, here. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it takes your measurements and it transmits through Bluetooth your measurements onto your, onto your laptop. And so then you go to the, to the jean store, you go to the, you know, go to Louis Copeland's, my buddies and Louis Copeland's, and uh, they have your measurements as they are today. And so you don't have to go in there. They, they will do all of that doing. Uh, they'll post you out your, your new jacket, your new jeans, your shirts, your jump, whatever, whatever it might be. If you don't like it, just send it back and they'll make the adjustments, send it back to you again. What about the browsers? What about the people who do the window shopping? Pop songs have been written about it. What about that experience of, of picking up something, looking at it, going on somewhere else, comparing? See, things? again, I think this is a lot about the competition for time now, okay? I think a lot of people during the pandemic have uh, become obsessed with TikTok. And one of the things with TikTok is can't stop watching it, okay? Because all these really short videos, some of them are terrible. Some of them are, are very funny. So that's competing for your time. Uh, you can pass an hour on TikTok very quickly. You can pass an hour on Twitter incredibly quickly. Um, so they're competing for your time. So instead of going shopping, would you rather play with your Nintendo Switch uh, and play Zelda for an hour? Or would you rather be on TikTok or would you rather go and buy um, and buy a new shirt or a pair of trousers or a pair of shoes? So it's about comp- it's about competition for time. I, I think there's a big cultural thing at play here. If I might just sort of switch the gear a little bit, but stick with your question here for a minute. I don't know about you, but during this during this lockdown, um, I, I had to wear a suit and a pair of shoes once. And that was to go to a family funeral. Okay. And that's once since the 12th of March. It's the, it's, you know, we're in the middle of July now. I wear, I wear a, a rotation of suits and shirts and those shoes and ties every day. And I have done for 30 years. Will we ever buy another suit again? Because are we ever going back to that old, that old way of doing things? And now having lived in, you know, gym gear effectively for four months, they actually want to go back to that model. And of course, 
what changes like this do is they don't introduce new trends in markets. They accelerate existing trends. And we have had this trend towards casualization for a very, very long time. We have had a trend away from the accumulation of stuff. For some of us, that's for cultural reasons. For some people, it's for economic reasons. But for many of us, it's about sustainability. And it's about having experiences with people. Now, if you're fortunate enough, and I appreciate that not everybody is, but if you are fortunate enough to live in a home with people that you like, to live in a house with people that you like, I think what we have all learned, and I appreciate again that there are some people, this has been a very difficult time with the increases in domestic violence and so on. So I respect that point, Emmett. But I think for a lot of people, the time that they have spent in their homes with their immediate families or friends or whoever it is that they live with has been extremely positive. And so I think what we will see post this is a further acceleration of that cultural trend away from the accumulation of stuff and more towards the accumulation of experiences. So how much of that has to happen? And what does it mean? You know, I'm conscious of having a very diverse audience with a lot of different people with different concerns, and particularly for the bricks and mortar people. Translate all of what you've just said for them. I mean, are you saying well, the, the model question, they have is, is, is kind yeah, of over, or are you saying it has the, to be reinvented? The question which they should ask themselves is, how much of my business can I lose before I'm in serious financial trouble? And the answer for most of them is less than 15%. I was going to say less than 10% because that's what I actually believe, but it depends on the economics of a business. Let's say less than 15%. You do not have to lose 100% of your sales to be in trouble. You lose a lot, a much, much smaller percentage of that. If you wanted not to be in that situation, there are some companies that you could look towards and I think the first thing to do is to not be afraid of Amazon because Amazon has had a shaky time during COVID-19. And this is publicly reported. It's not private information. Their model works extremely well when you have stable demand and all their algorithms and so on work when everything is stable. Now it's not stable. And suddenly the stuff that you order is not showing up when it's supposed to show up. Suddenly, you're, uh, the resellers who sell through, through Amazon, suddenly they're overwhelmed by demand as well. Suddenly, you have scalping on the site. These are all things that Amazon is working really, really hard to address because it's a deeply customer-focused firm, as I said a couple of minutes ago. But the Amazon model is not a beat-all model. And there are parts of geographically in the world where Amazon has not worked for reasons of local conditions. So don't get caught in the headlights by Amazon. The second thing is, look at companies like the New York Times and Walmart. Here are two businesses which we talk about extensively at the school. Two very, very traditional businesses who basically said, okay, our industry has changed to be digital. We accept that our company may be smaller either in terms of sales or profitability for a period of time but we are transitioning our business from an old model to a new model. Now, the New York Times business is a lot smaller than it is today. Than it, it is much smaller today than it was, you know, maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But they are now a global news brand consumed all around the world by key decision makers all around the world. And if they switched off the printing presses tomorrow, the last time I checked their financials, they would be extremely profitable. Walmart in the last week has launched a product called Walmart Plus. Now, Walmart Plus is the response of Walmart to Amazon Prime. Now, Amazon Prime, some people will know from the, you know, you pay 90 euros a year 
you get free delivery from Amazon fulfillment centers, uh, and you get a whole bunch of other benefits. But what you may not know is that when people sign up for Amazon Prime, they become very relationally focused on buying on Amazon. So instead of buying from a whole portfolio of online sellers and, and bricks and mortar sellers, suddenly you search on Amazon first because the delivery is free and it's really fast. And that's been, if you like, the category killer for Amazon. Now Walmart has introduced the same thing. It's called Walmart Plus. And basically what they're doing is they're changing their business model from being transactional to being relational. If I was a retailer, I would be trying to find a way, if I had, a, if I had one or two stores, I would be trying to find a way to be incredibly different, noticeably different to whoever my competition are. And I will be trying to change not what the business looks like from the outside, but what the business looks like from the inside in terms of how the business model works and how I generate my profitability. And does being local, is that your friend or foe in that changeover? Uh, I think being local is irrelevant. But why local stores are winners is if the owners choose to engage with what a, a colleague of ours, Zeynep uh, Tan from, uh, from MIT in Boston, what she calls good job strategy. What Zeynep suggests, and Walmart have, just to pick Walmart as an example, have actively engaged in, is why don't you pay your staff a little bit more? And as a result of that, can you then hire a better quality of staff? As a result of hiring a better quality of staff, can you improve the, what she calls the operational excellence of your business? And for me, that means two things. Can you reduce your costs and increase your sales? And as a result of that, can you improve your profitability? I think that's what happens in local stores. In our local bookshop, when I go in there, I try to buy all my books there. And academics, we spend a ton of money on books. It doesn't matter to me if it's being delivered overnight from Amazon. I'd rather support that local store. When I go in there and I want some obscure book about some you know, obscure piece of marketing, the person who works there part-time says, oh, sure, you know, we'll get that for you. It's going to take us about a week. Will I give you a call when, I, when it comes in? Or you want me to drop it around to the house? And that's what I mean by good jobs. That person is driving operational excellence for that business, and they're driving their profitability uh, upwards. And, and every, I think this really applies when you go to super value stores, you know, those smaller kind of stores, smaller. They're big, super, they're supermarkets, but they're smaller supermarkets where you go into the store and your neighbors and your neighbors' kids and people from your community are in the store and they know that you had a bereavement in the family, you know, two days ago, and they know you're coming in to buy the provisions for the funeral. Or they know that it's confirmations this weekend if you're a Catholic. And, and so they know you're in to buy for the confirmations. And so they know what you're looking for. And they say, you know, Emmett, have you thought about such and such a thing? Or Emmett, sorry, sorry for your loss, Emmett. Do you want us to drop that stuff up to the house for you? Could we make the sandwiches up for you and drop them up for you? Do you need soup with that? That is what good jobs are about. And that's what good retailers are doing. I, I think how, how Premark have managed their staff during this COVID-19 crisis has been absolutely extraordinary. That's largely what they have done is to manage the relationship with them. I think everybody I know who works for Premark, and I'm sure it's the same with Duns. I know it's the same with Super Value. 
they absolutely appreciate what their employer has done for them. And as a result, watch the operational excellence go up, watch profitability go up because their staff will deliver that for them. I was in a super value store that there was an, uh, one of the German discounters was going to be built beside. Um, and the retailer had pinned up on his notice board, you know, the announcement in the local, this is a small town, the Midlands of Ireland, he pinned up on the notice board uh, the announcement that this German discounter was opening just across the road from them. And he wrote on a piece of paper, just ripped out of a, like a copybook. I'll never forget it. He said, on the piece of paper, he said, who's interested in competing for their jobs? Mm, interesting. And, and that, you know, you go to that, I'm happy to tell you the name of the store when we're off air. You go to that store today and ask how the German discounter is doing and ask how that uh, super value is doing. I tell you who won the war because super value every day of the week. Um, because staff delivered it for the, the managers and the owners and for themselves. So I think we need to stop thinking about great retailers have stopped thinking about their employees as some kind of uh, disposable uh, accessory to activities. Instead, they have thought about how do we engage them with our purpose? How do we engage them with our strategy? How do we use them to drive operational excellence? That is to reduce our costs, improve the efficiency of our model, and how do we use them to drive our profitability? Uh, that is, how do we get them to sell more uh, and how do we get them to sell the right products uh, at the right price to the right consumers? That's brilliant. That's so the, the, route, the, the, route, the route to success leads to the, the, the staff room. You know, that's really interesting. There's no yeah. question. that There's absolutely no question about that. My, my favorite pubs in Dublin, you know, Peter's Pub around the back of Grafton Street there. I mean, the staff, and I've been going there for 30 years. The staff in there are extraordinarily, the long haul. <laughs> well, you'll get a free pint the next time now that uh, you've mentioned them here. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they're the long haul. I mean, those pubs are great pubs, uh, not because of their location. I mean, the Guinness is great in all. I don't, I'm not a drinker, but the Guinness is great in all. They're a nice place to drink people. But when you go there, somebody will say hello to you and, and somebody yeah. will say, do you want, you know, do you want a cup of tea with that? Or do you want to have a drink with that? It's like it is a focus on the customer experience, but in a way that drives excellence uh, and drives profitability. So the, that's where the path is. There's no question about that. Okay. Well, listen, you started off, you had me a bit worried that this was going to be a, a tale of woe for the retailers, but you've actually ended on a note where there's real instruction in there. There's really good information, rich information for them, at least to ponder whether they agree with it or don't agree with it. It's a perspective. And it, as you say, it's positive in the sense that your staff, your customer service, it's in there that is the route to surviving this particular chapter and other ones that are going to come along. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a really Thanks, fascinating Emma. conversation uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you.